This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. This week's guest is Alan Tracy, immediate past president of U.S. Wheat Associates. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Alan Tracy next. In rural America, there are three things that never change. The land, the determination of the families that farm it, and the loyalty of their co-ops, which provide the markets, inputs, and agronomic expertise farmers and ranchers need to stay profitable. CHS, the nation's leading cooperative, is proud to connect member cooperatives and producers to the value of an energy, grains, and food company they own. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Alan Tracy served as president of U.S. Wheat Associates for 20 years, now is serving as the group's senior advisor. In two decades, Tracy says quality has replaced politics in gaining global market share, and the U.S. has proven itself a reliable supplier of high-quality wheat. The U.S. is uh, number three in production after China and India. But China and India, they're neither net importers nor net exporters. Uh, They kind of bounce back and forth from year to year. Uh, China used to be a very big customer, the biggest in the world. But they are subsidizing their producers, paying them in the range of $10 a bushel to produce wheat. And, And so, lo and behold, they get more wheat. But we're number three, and then followed closely by a bunch of other exporters, Canada and Russia, Uh, Russia may even overtake us this year in terms of production. Uh, What counts to me, though, is the amount of trade. And the U.S. is the number one wheat exporting country uh, over any significant period of time. Uh, There again, Russia looks like they might overtake us this year. Um, It's interesting, though, that even if they do take uh, take that lead in terms of tonnage, it will not be a lead in terms of dollar value. And that gets back to the quality differentiation. We do get premiums for what we sell because of high protein or, in some cases, uh, low protein. Specific end uses demand specific types of wheat. And, and I prefer to refer to wheat now not as a commodity, but as a collection of ingredients for specific end uses. So, you know, all of the major grains, all the temperate climate crops, interact in a lot of ways. You notice that the prices tend to go up and down together. It's uh, Their supply demand uh, is interdependent. So the fact that you feed wheat, uh, you know, if wheat's really cheap, uh, you know, it cuts into corn. You know, if, if corn's expensive, it gives a boost to wheat. But for the value that we receive, it's it's not the feeding side that we're interested in. It's the human consumption side. And that also makes it more politically sensitive, things like Biotech are, are more controversial in, in wheat and rice than they are in corn and soybeans. You know, it makes it an interesting game. You know, it's a serious game because we're out there trying to defend the interests of our U.S. farmers and to secure the best return for them that we can. How has global consumption of wheat changed, and should it or has it changed our targets with regard to promotion of U.S. wheat sales and product? You know, that's a very good question. Historically, and I think it's it's really relevant for corn and soybeans because, as you know, the middle class wants to consume meat when they get the chance, when they reach the middle class, especially at the lower ends of that. And that really boosts demand for uh, corn and soybeans. Demand for wheat tends to come lower on the income curve. 
It's when people finally get where both the man and the woman of a family are working and uh, they don't have time to cook a bowl of rice. It tends to expand based on coming off of self-sufficiency to having a commercial market. The response isn't as strong as it is for corn and soybeans. However, the growing middle class in places like Asia, the pull that it takes on corn and soybeans does boost wheat prices. And then uh, if you look at a country like Indonesia, which 20 years ago was just really wretchedly poor, and it's now emerging, it's at the early stages of development, it will soon be the number one buyer of wheat in the world. It's a second to Egypt right now. So we do get that pull, and of course, the world economy is incredibly important to our wheat producers. Peace and stability abroad bring the opportunity for market growth. We see a bright future for wheat. There is little doubt that technology within the seed, especially of corn and soybeans, have helped those producers uh, produce more with less, their sustainability message and their profitability message. Over the past 20 years, we've seen wheat acres decline. Do you think the lack of biotech traits, the lack of technology in the seed, is it having an effect on production in the U.S.? Historically, wheat has had lower growth rates uh, in yield than corn, going all the way back to at least to the beginning of hybrid corn. We've lost a lot of acreage to corn and soybeans, and certainly the availability of biotech traits in those crops has been a part of it. With soybeans, I think a lot of it is more just traditional breeding and getting to shorter and shorter maturity soybeans. The rootworm protection of, of corn has allowed it to move west. It's turned out to be a drought-tolerance trait. Those have both cut into wheat and you know, when you can grow really good corn, the economics dictate that's what you grow. So we have lost acreage. Uh, I do see that leveling out, though. For one, we've managed to maintain our production at about 2.2 billion bushels uh, all through that time period and pretty much to maintain our exports and our lead in the world on exports. The world market for wheat's growing, so I don't think we're going to necessarily maintain our lead, certainly not without a, a, an increase in acreage. But the key is that what we produce is demanded. Uh, it's demanded in areas that are growing. Uh, we've refocused a lot of our efforts to Latin America and uh, uh, Asia and South Asia in particular as a growing area. And, you know, they're demanding uh, those specific types of wheat that we grow. So eventually, either through premiums or through the basic price of wheat, we have to see a readjustment where the wheat price differential from corn in particular has to grow because uh, I don't think our wheat acreage is going to keep declining. I think the demand is going to be there to force that production to occur. Because of the growth in those parts of the world, I see prospect for at least a leveling off of our acreage and better times ahead for wheat producers in their price versus the other grains. Do you see a time when the U.S. or the globe will be forced to adapt to biotech traits in wheat, whether from disease or insect resistance or uh, weed management or just overall increase in production? That's a good question, and I suppose it's possible. We do have the advent of these new breeding techniques, the gene deletion techniques. They're particularly applicable to wheat. Wheat has a complex genome. It's hexaploid. So if you've got, let's say, a recessive trait that's favorable and you can, through these 
non-GM techniques, put that trait on uh, all six of the chromosome pairs and get it expressed, there's a tremendous potential for these new techniques. I see more focus on that now, unfortunately, especially in the international market, which is so important to the U.S., there's a lot of resistance to biotech. And here we have an alternative that suddenly, just in the last few years, is moving very, very quickly. I think it's a game changer. Uh, I think this is going to be as important in the future as some of our other past major improvements, such as the development of hybrid corn. So, um, And across, not just uh, for wheat, but all across the grain sector and even the livestock sector. Whether by volume or by value, what role does the global market play to the domestic wheat producer bottom line? It's imperative for wheat since the U.S. exports about half of our wheat. Domestic demand is very consistent but very, very level. Not Nothing very exciting happening there. You know, we get moves of, of perhaps a percent or a percent and a half in a given year, and it's big news. Whereas the export market, where 95% of the world's people live and where half of our wheat goes, is quite volatile. So that's really what determines the price. And as you know, I'm a big advocate of a major focus on trade and its importance, but it's it's vital to our producers. We at U.S. Wheat, of course, uh, focus entirely on the export side. Uh, we think that's what drives prices for our producers. And we've, we have studies and things that, that show that to be the case, that even rather modest differences in uh, uh, in exports can make a big difference in price. It seems the Trump White House has a different attitude toward trade than some other administrations, and some would suggest drifting toward an area of isolationism. How do you see this White House, and what are your thoughts on the withdrawal of TPP, the renegotiation of NAFTA, and the suggested, perhaps, renegotiation of the course trade deal? Well, you know, I think isolationism is, is too strong a, an epithet to put on this administration. Uh, clearly, they're, they have an uh, economic nationalist-type agenda. Uh, we are more focused on trying to have uh, good policies that will allow trade to thrive in all directions, and that's where U.S. agriculture prospers because we have a competitive advantage in, in agriculture. We were very disappointed to see TPP dropped. We think that drops our U.S. leadership in Asia. It wasn't a huge thing for wheat per se, but I think it was a positive for U.S. agriculture. And it leaves us with some individual problems here and there, uh, little things like Vietnam, another growing market, which has a, a an agreement with Australia for zero tariffs, can impose tariffs on us at any time. So we were upset with that. We've gained a lot from NAFTA, actually. Last year, Mexico was our number one market for wheat, and uh, it's very positive for agriculture generally. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, that renegotiation ends up being a positive. There are some things that need to be fixed and can be fixed, but uh, it's a concern. I think this administration has taken more of a, a transactional approach rather than a policy-based approach or a, a philosophy-based approach. Uh, you know, you know, it's sort of you, you go to China and you say we'll give you chicken parts in exchange for uh, for some beef and rice, uh, and that ignores everything else that's going on in the world. That that can be positive and it can work, but I, I think it's also important to recognize that the U.S. has benefited hugely from our 
essentially enforcement of an open trading regime over the years. That said, there are a lot of other challenges out there for agriculture and other industries. You know, I know Mr. Lighthizer. He's a very aggressive guy. I think there are some things that they can do for us on the positive side. Agriculture wants to work with this administration to try to temper some of the things that we've, we've read about and deal with the practicalities. I think in the long run, that's, that's how it's going to work out. A similar question that I offered to Paul Drazik last week was that this administration certainly campaigned in the Rust Belt and promises were made with regard to trade. And in the Farm Belt, also voters helped to secure his position in the White House. Some very concerned about Section 232 and what relationship steel has to agriculture products. Yeah, this is, has been a sleeper for a lot of agriculture, and it's worth a little bit of explanation. The WTO rules, the World Trade Organization rules that we uh, have signed on to, and most of the rest of the world has signed on to, have an exemption that says that for national security purposes, any country can pretty much ignore the other rules. And nobody has done that, and I think it's been very positive that nobody has done that. However, you know, our steel industry is hurting, uh, our aluminum industry is hurting, so there are two, un- two investigations underway by the Department of Commerce. The new Secretary of Commerce comes from the steel industry, and they're looking into this Section 232 of the, what was originally the GATT rules, now the WTO, that would allow them to impose restrictions on steel and claim that, uh, that that's justified. I don't think it is justified. Uh, our national security concerns on uh, steel, for instance, uh, you know, yeah, it takes steel to make tanks and battleships, but all the military expenditure on, of steel is about 2% of our total consumption. So, you know, I don't think it's a national security issue. Uh, the problem is that if, um, if they do go ahead with this, that they set a precedent where other nations can say, well, Food is a national security issue, of course. You know, it takes takes food to feed soldiers, and we're vulnerable. So we can do whatever we want to restrict imports of food. That's the risk. It, it isn't retaliation, per se. It's uh, copycatting that we're concerned about. It does appear that the House and the Senate Agriculture Committees are working toward markup of a 2018 Farm Bill. The MAP funds and the FMD funds are very important to other commodities. What about those funds with relationship to U.S. wheat and promoting and maintaining markets in the globe? U.S. Wheat Associates is one of the major users of the MAP and FMD programs. And we've seen a substantial decline in the funds that we've been able to get out of those programs from the government. Part of that is because those programs have eroded to a degree. There's been inflation, of course, since the last time they were increased, which was 2002 Farm Bill. And there's, of course, sequestration. They're being used for administrative expenses. The result is that when you take inflation into account, you know, there's $234.5 million in those programs annually. Last year, active spending for those was about $140 million. So it's simply been eroding, and uh, we've tried to make it up. Our wheat farmers, our state wheat commissions have ponied up. They've increased uh, by a couple million dollars what they give to U.S. wheat over the last four or five years, but we've seen about a four million decline from the government. We think that it's important that there be an increase in this farm bill in those two programs. Uh, We'd like to see them doubled over the life of the bill, 
and that's a, a goal that's been signed on to by uh, all kinds of commodity groups uh, all across the country. It's tough to do that. Uh, budgets are short, but when you compare the return on investment from these programs, uh, it's it's hard to beat. I think it really should be a top priority. U.S. Wheat Associates has 15 offices outside of the U.S. We're in direct contact with the major buyers all over the world. We provide them valuable services and training that lend towards their being more sophisticated and buying more U.S. wheat versus what they would otherwise. You know, if, we, if we're able to keep our exports up, that brings more money back to the producers that even goes so far as to improve the health of rural communities, uh, ag-dependent communities all across the country. Well, on July 1, Vince Peterson became the fourth president of U.S. Wheat Associates, and you assumed a role of senior advisor. So look back over the past 20 years, the things that you learned from working with this particular group and the things that you think they'll need to keep close as they look to the next 20 years. I've really enjoyed working for the the wheat producers. They are export-oriented and particularly, of course, the ones that are attracted to being on their state wheat commissions and therefore potentially being on the U.S. Wheat Board. I've served 20 different U.S. Wheat chairmen over that time period. They have been an amazing group of people that are elected by their peers to to run that organization. Vince is a, a tremendous selection to replace me. He's worked for U.S. Wheat for 32 years instead of my just 20 and has a history before that as a grain trader and buyer. It's an ideal selection, and he and I have worked closely together. Uh, he's been the vice president for our overseas operations for the last 12 years, so it's a great choice. There are changes that are going to have to happen in our organization, and our board and Vince will work those out just fine. I'm, I'm not concerned about somebody having moved my desk or any such thing, you know. The organization, if you go back to its beginnings really in the 60s and it formed the, the merger of two predecessor organizations to form U.S. Wheat in, in 1980, has gone through a lot of changes already and will continue to adapt. Uh, the key message always is to serve the best interests of the farmers and their customers overseas because those interests are mutual. Well, Alan Tracy, we want to thank you very much for taking time to spend with us here on Open Mic. We appreciate your service to the U.S. wheat industry and certainly glad that you're still going to be involved. But the title of the show is Open Mic, and, sir, you have an open forum. It's been an honor to serve this wheat industry for the last 20 years and before when I was at USDA in the White House in the state of Wisconsin. Um, It's a a great industry, and uh, the entire ag industry is the heart of America, and I really have enjoyed the opportunity to be of some service to it over all these years. Our thanks to Alan Tracy, former president and now senior advisor for U.S. Wheat Associates, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.